0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you know our speaker. He's the New York Times bestselling author. He's the author of 30 children's books. He lives from Manhattan, but he's here in Arizona. So would you give him a big Arizona welcome, Eric Metaxas. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Wow. So how many of you would have preferred to come to the 8 o'clock service? <laughs> right? I know. Uh, what a blessing. It is such a blessing to be here. I'm here with my, uh, my current wife. What's your name, baby? Uh, I, is it too early for harsh joking? I'm from New York, uh, and we're two hours later. So it's really new, almost noon in New York City. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring an afternoon message. I hope that's OK. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank Pastor Bill and and Mike Grimm for allowing me to come. Last night, by the way, was a a blessing to me. People don't understand how I get blessed um, by by hearing from folks like you. How many people were here last night? Okay, and the rest of you, shame on you. Shame. I spoke about, well, uh, uh, Pastor Bill interviewed me about my book, Is Atheism Dead? Uh, And I don't want to really cover much that I spoke on last night, but um, the reason I titled the book as Atheism Dead, just so you understand where it's coming from. Some of you know that in 1966, Time magazine put out a famous, infamous cover article, right? And it said, Is God Dead? And it's kind of interesting. Uh, I find it interesting that in 1966, If you weren't really a hardcore Christian, and you're kind of like trying to read the tea leaves, you know, all the scientists were saying that science is really pushing out faith, and that science is more and more enabling us to discover that we don't need God to explain the panoply of creation. Uh, We can explain it through natural forces, okay? Now, that was never true, but you could understand how around 1966, people got out over their skis. Or, I know we don't have a lot of skiers here, do we? Uh, outkick their coverage, what can I say? Where can, you know? But the point is that it's so fascinating that human beings are always tempted to say, we figured it out, let's go with it, print it, you know? Except, of course, we know uh, now and you know, even then, that's just not right, But but the science, was, it was a heady time, right? And a lot of people thought science is pushing, it was the narrative. And the thesis of my book is Atheism Dead is that around 1966, we got stuck in that gear. That something happened in American culture that a lot of people just said, you know, we, uh, we'll let people go to church and you know, you can believe that stuff, but, but the powers that be, the elites know, yeah, religion is on its way out, right? Well, something funny happened. Since about 1966, the evidence for God from science has been piling up steadily, 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 until you get to a point now where the evidence, I'm just talking from science, for the idea that only God could explain everything that exists that random scientific processes cannot explain how we get everything we have whether it's the universe or this planet or life that evidence has been piling up and the evidence is astonishing but what's more astonishing to me and why I wrote the book is that none of us knows this you don't read this in a newspaper you know science pointing to God but the fact of the matter is that that is the case and if you read certain Christian authors, or if you're into apologetics, you're starting to pick this stuff up. But the mainstream media, the culture, tends to just ignore it. Like, we settled that question in 1966. We've moved on. Well, reality has not moved on. God has not moved on. The fact of the matter is that just the opposite has been happening. Now, the most dramatic example when we talk about evidence for God is something called the fine-tuned universe. How many people here are familiar with the argument for God from the fine-tuned universe? I'm just curious. Anybody? Okay, you guys can take your cigarette break right now. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll see you in 10 minutes. Really. It's beautiful. It's beautiful outside. They're serving donuts. (laughs) By the way, serving donuts when you walk in, that's not biblical. I don't know where you get that from. I have no idea where you get that from. I was like, what is this? What is this kind of luxurious living? That is not biblical you know, to, to do that. And yet, of course, I'm upset that our church in New York doesn't do that. I'm, a- I'm angry. Um, but I just want to say that the fine-tuned universe, I want to I acquaint you with this, because this is kind of the most simple example, because there's all these examples from science. But the most basic one is what's called the fine-tuned universe. And it's gotten so ridiculous, the evidence has piled up so much on this that it's open and shut. It's not kind of like, well, it's compelling. No there's a lot of compelling stuff. This isn't compelling, this is open and shut. You know, this is like evidence that the earth is a sphere. If you've got questions about that, I don't wanna hear about it, by the way, in the book line, okay? If you're flat earther, please don't talk to me. But the point is that there's certain things, it's open and shut. And the evidence for God, from science, from the finite universe, it's, it's kind of piled up to a point where it's hilarious. But to me, again, the headline is, nobody knows this, nobody talks about it. And really, What's funny is the, the 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 atheist Christopher Hitchens. I don't know about 15 years ago. Somebody shoved a camera in his face in the back of a car. And said, "Hey, what's the best argument from the other side?" Because he's was always, always debating Christians and people of faith, and he was a very unpleasant, nasty debater. And I say that in a positive sense. Uh, he, was, uh, he was really unpleasant. You know, there's certain people that they're, they don't seem like they're interested in truth. They seem like they're interested in ripping your head off and uh, dancing on your grave. But in a rare moment of candor and generosity, he said, oh, uh, the fine-tuned argument. He actually answered honestly and said, yeah, uh, you know, if somebody asked him what's the most, what's the best argument for the God side? He said, the fine-tuned argument. And he said, it is the idea that if, if things, you know, as science examines something, they notice that, gee, if it we're just a tiny bit this way, or a tiny bit this way, life couldn't exist. So he was even moved by that and, and said it out loud. And he said, and I, and I suspect that most people on my side, on the atheist side, would agree with that, um, uh, that that one takes a bit working out. Now, by saying it takes a bit working out means we're stumped. There is no answer to, to it. We don't like it, so we will say things like it takes a bit working out. Yeah, yeah, it takes a bit working out on a piece of paper. Um, there's no working it out. The evidence for the fine-tuned universe that God has designed everything brilliantly, perfectly, accurately, is just staggering. And again, the biggest news is that most of us don't know it um, because it's been piling up quietly over the decades while we've been busy raising kids and doing things, and, and the newspapers aren't aren't really like you know, going out there with these headlines or it really never piles up enough, except uh, before I wrote this book, what led me to write this book was I wrote a book, uh, I guess about seven years ago called Miracles. And in it, I talked about, you know, out and out miracles of God, how God is a God of miracles. And I talked about scriptural miracles and miracles that have happened to me and people I know, that there's no other explanation except that's called a miracle. God is alive and he does miracles. Anybody here, dare to say that they've ever experienced some kind of a, a miracle from God? Okay, you're all heretics, get out. Uh, of course, that's real. But what is the biggest miracle for me that I put in that book seven years ago was the miracle of creation. When you start studying the fine-tuned universe, you start studying the, uh, you know, whether it's the, the, the Big Bang or, or the, the, the Earth, or life, or wh- wherever you look, you start saying, this is so exquisitely, perfectly designed that it, it's an argument for God that's just breathtaking. That if anything were this way or this way. So I wrote the book, and then I wrote an op-ed that was in the Wall Street Journal. It was the first time I was published in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, since I've been vocal politically, probably the last, right? Uh, but we kid. Is it too early to joke? It's too, obviously, I never would have cracked a joke like that at the eight o'clock. That's why they had me here at the nine thirty. So, so I published this article that was a Wall Street Journal, and I said in this, it's a short op-ed, and it said, "Science increasingly makes the case for God." Came out about seven years ago when the book came out. That article, that op-ed in the New York, in the sorry, in the Wall Street Journal, was literally the most popular shared article in the history of the Wall Street Journal by a factor of more than double. And uh, I met the woman uh, who wrote the article about the tiger mom who came in at number two. Man, is she ticked. Um, I actually did meet her, she's a sweet woman. But, but th- they said that that was shared like 300,000 times and mine was like, whoa, 650,000. So you wanna ask yourself, why was it such a popular article? It's because the culture we live in hardly ever acknowledges that the evidence for God is unbelievable, it's piling up. And so when I wrote about this little article, you know, a lot of people just freaked out. They thought, really? Wow, I, you know, I, I keep hearing over and over and over that science is at odds with faith, and faith is at odds with science. Well, that's baloney. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's totally untrue, but we never talk about it. So I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and, went, you know, and it was about the fine-tuned universe. And people came out of the woodwork to, to basically say oh this is ridiculous this fine-tuned universe thing has been dealt with long ago nobody buys this anymore and i thought yeah except here's the problem like 10 minutes ago Christopher hitchens you know the, the poster boy for atheism said it was the most compelling argument the fact is folks there's no getting around it so let me give an example when i say fine-tuned universe we now know now we didn't know this when a lot of us were kids but we now know from science that if the earth this is really simple right if the earth Were the tiniest bit smaller, I don't mean way smaller, I mean just like a 4%, 5%, something like that, tiniest bit smaller, we wouldn't have the sufficient, what they call a magnetosphere, to retain the atmosphere that we have, and therefore you'd not be able to breathe right now. Wouldn't that be uncomfortable? You think it's hard sitting through church, and you're able to breathe. Can you imagine if the earth were the tiniest bit smaller? Science knows this now. They're like, huh, coincidence. It just happens to be big enough to have an atmosphere so we can breathe without thinking about it. And we don't think about it, do we? We take it for granted, don't you? You don't go like, wow, amazing, I can breathe. Atmosphere, cool. We don't even think about it. But science says, well, if the Earth were a little bit smaller, like Mars, zero atmosphere. But here's where it gets creepy. If the Earth were the tiniest bit bigger, same thing science now tells us this is science this is not christians this is science says that if the earth were a little bit smaller or a little bit bigger we could not have the atmosphere that we have and life would not be possible well you think well gee isn't that what a great coincidence aren't we lucky that our planet just happens to be exactly the right size for this atmosphere and for life isn't that isn't that lucky and you think, yeah, you could think it's lucky, or you could think, it, it appears like maybe it was designed. But we don't want to believe that, because that would mean we'd believe in God, and that's repulsive, so we'll reject it. We'll, we'll call it luck. But science discovers other things, and other things, and other things. Wherever science looks, it discovers, gee, that's creepy. It's exactly, it looks exactly fine-tuned. The existence of the moon. How many people are aware that we have a moon? A a lot of you. A lot of you. Yes. Uh, Well, did you ever look up at the moon and think that if the moon weren't there, we couldn't be here? We never think of that. You never even occur to us, like, why? I mean, it's nice. It regulates the tides. Well, that's that's pretty big. But, you know, what do you care in Phoenix about tides? Let's be honest, right? I think it's been, like, what, 180 million years since you've had any uh, water here, right? You don't care about tides. But let me tell you something. We now know... And again, this is in the last 50 years since Time Magazine's article. We now know that the moon, if it weren't there, and if it didn't have the size that it has, the, the moon is an outrageous anomaly in our solar system. I mean, if you look at other planets and their moons, the, our moon is gigantic compared to the size of Earth. I mean, it's really, really big, right? Uh, when, when you think of the size of Earth, it's you know, 2,000 miles across, and Earth is 8,000 miles across. It's huge. Science now knows, without any doubt, that if it weren't there, we couldn't be here. We now know that the moon regulates the rotation, that our wa- the wobble of our rotation without the moon would be so outrageous that there is just no chance that we were able to have any kind of the climate or atmosphere, anything that we have. So there's another thing you think, wow, great coincidence. How lucky. But wherever you, lo- that was my wife laughing. See, that's what keeps our marriage young. She still laughs at the old jokes, um, thank you, honey, thank you. Um, that's why my daughter's not here, she does not laugh at these jokes. Uh, no, but I I just want to tell you, those are just two obvious things, but science, as it has improved over the decades, think about this, right? Science has gotten able to see more and more on the microscopic level, on the, the level of, you know, better telescopes, better microscopes, the more we could see with science, the more we could see how perfectly designed everything is. Those are two obvious examples. Another one which is really bizarre, since you live uh, in a part of the world where you can see the sky and stars. How many of you have ever seen Saturn uh, or sorry, Jupiter in the night sky? Anybody here ever see Jupiter in the night sky? A lot of you, Okay, you could take a cigarette break. Don't be ashamed. Go ahead. It's, uh, I got to tell you something. We live in New York City in Manhattan. We don't get to see Jupiter, okay? We have a lot of lights, and, um, and the mayor doesn't allow us to to look outdoors anymore. (laughs) And, um, hey, Romans 13, you got to obey. You got to obey. Uh, and so... When I come to a place like this, I was in Albuquerque a week ago, and you ask that question, a lot of hands go up, like, oh yeah, we, we've seen Jupiter. Well, let me tell you something. That pinprick of light in the sky called Jupiter, it is 400 million miles away. The, the sun is 93 million miles away. Jupiter is 400 million miles away. So it's so far away that it's inconceivable. But it is so large that the gravity from Jupiter and Saturn to some extent, is so powerful that it pulls away meteors and asteroids that would otherwise strike Earth. They are pulled toward Jupiter, and they either hit Jupiter or or just move in that direction because of the gravity of Jupiter. And science now knows that if Jupiter, that little pinprick 400 million miles away, if it weren't there, about a 1,000 times as many asteroids and meteors would hit Earth. And science knows that if that were the case, we wouldn't be here, or you'd be really jumpy, looking up all the time. Like what? But the fact of the matter is that we don't even, who thinks about this? Who thinks about, hey, how awesome, that that little pinprick of light 400 million miles away is there because science and I tells us if it weren't there, we couldn't be here. We, we just kind of take it for granted. But if you start studying the science, it begins to freak you out. It's like, well, that's interesting. It's almost as though somebody put it there. It's almost as though somebody designed the solar system for our benefit. But that couldn't be. We don't want to believe in God. That's like obsolete. You know, that's medieval, right? We don't want to believe in that. Well, I'm here to tell you. It's amazing that everywhere you look in the universe, you see this kind of evidence. Now, if if a meteor, I I mentioned this last night, about the size of this sanctuary, about 180 feet, maybe something like that, that happened in uh, Tunguska, Siberia, in 1908. Right? We know this: that a meteor about 180 feet in diameter, which, when you think of the size of the Earth, that's like unbelievably tiny, right? It's like like a grain of sand. But it hit a remote area of Siberia in 1908. Just that size, that's just one, okay? And the effect of that one meteor of that size was so outrageous, okay? It came into our atmosphere, that size, about 35,000 miles per hour, and exploded about five miles over the surface of the Earth in this very remote section of Siberia. And the power of that explosion was the equivalent of 1,000 Hiroshima bombs. It instantly flattened 80 million trees. Now, I know you don't have trees here, but trust me. They're, that's impressive. That's impressive. So that's one meteor about that size that happened in 1908. Nothing like that has happened since, because you'd have heard about it. But science knows the devastating effect that they have, okay? And we now know, oh, oh yeah, because of Jupiter, 400 million miles away, that's not happening very often. So we're not nervous about it. We're not jumpy about it. We can exist because coincidentally, Jupiter just happens to be there protecting us, you know, like running interference, right? But everywhere we look, we see these evidences of design. There's a whole chapter in my book on water, and I have to tell you, this is I didn't think I'd write a chapter on water. You think, what could be more boring? What do we take for granted? You know, it's like breathing, who cares? It's water, what, what? Well, science in examining water realizes that water makes no sense. It appears to be exquisitely designed. And you kind of think, well, uh, it's colorless, uh, it's odorless, it's, you know, what could be more average, what could be more normal than water? Well, that's kind of the whole point. It is so astonishing, the design of water. Science says that, you know, when you look at a water molecule, it doesn't really make sense. It's not supposed to be kind of a substance that boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, Uh, And that freezes at 32 degrees. From a a chemical point of view, it really doesn't make sense. And of course, I use Fahrenheit because what are we, communists? Come on. Please. Enough with the Celsius. Enough. I don't want to hear it. So, uh, So science looks at water and says it seems just to be a crazy brilliant design and one of the weirdest things about water there are two properties that are kind of interesting that make it look designed for life right one is that every substance when it becomes more dense okay I'm sorry When, when a substance goes from you know gas to liquid to solid it gets denser and denser right so that when something becomes a solid when it freezes it becomes super dense and sinks right yeah except for water water When it gets colder and colder, up to 39 degrees Fahrenheit, it gets denser and denser, just like you'd expect. But at 39 degrees Fahrenheit, it flips. And it starts to get less dense and less dense. And when it hits 32 and freezes, it's 9% less dense than the liquid water, and so it floats. And you think, well, yeah, ice floats. I I know. I had a highball once. (laughs) Admit it. Admit it, and we're gonna have an altar call for all of you when this is over. <laughs> and I want you to throw your highball glasses and the stirrers on this altar. Uh, okay, seriously, water freezes and it floats. Think about this. We don't, we never think about it, but science can now tell you that if it weren't for this weird thing that water, this substance, floats, we would have a runaway. Uh, freezing effect and life couldn't exist. Ponds and lakes and, and all, the science now knows that this is vital to life on Earth and it's a really strange quirk of water. It almost looks designed but we know it couldn't be designed. We know that, right? Because there's no God, we know. Water also has a curious thing. I didn't expect ever from a pulpit to be talking about viscosity and forgive me if that offends you. <laughs> But the viscosity of water is such, right? The thickness of water as it flows is perfectly designed so that it erodes rocks. So that when water flows, it erodes rocks, kind of like it's just thick enough to erode rocks to take the metals and the minerals along with it as it flows during the erosion process. And then of course, water also has this creepy ability to dissolve things perfectly. They call it the universal solvent. And so it carries along with it the metals and the minerals that it's dissolving. And wherever it flows, however far it goes, it carries those minerals and metals with it, feeding plants wherever it goes. So that the most far-flung, and I know here you don't have a ton of plants. I get it. (laughs) But go with it. I grew up in Connecticut. Think about it. Wherever water flows, it feeds the plants, and the grasses, and the trees, and whatever, wherever it flows. Because it has this weird property of eroding, and then dissolving, and carrying these things. And then animals eat the plants, and animals get the metals and the minerals. And he'd say, this is, what a great design. But of course, it's it's just, it's just happenstance. It just happened, we're just lucky. Well, I never really thought about erosion as a positive thing in my life. But we now know that if water didn't do this, there, there would be no life on Earth. This is just one of these weird things that we take for granted. Everywhere you look in science, you find more and more and more evidence along these lines. And erosion of, the erosion of water, it's so powerful that it should, over millions of years, it should have eroded all of the mountains down to nothing 10 times over. So they say, well, that's a problem. That's a design flaw. What are we gonna do about that? Well, science discovered in our lifetimes something called plate tectonics, that God designed this planet so that the, the plates move around and continue to create mountains as quickly as the water is eroding them. Or could that just be a coincidence? Everywhere we look, we see evidence of God's design, and it has piled up to a level that I promise you, if you're intellectually honest, it will freak you out. You will say, this can't be random. This can't be natural processes. In fact, there are so many things that if they weren't just this way or just this way, the fine tuning, that it, it, it's kind of like if you had 200 dials on a wall behind me and you said if every, any one of those dials is a millimeter to the left, I apologize for using metric, I apologize. A 32nd of an inch to the left, or a 32nd of an inch to the right, just a hair. Okay, ha- hair is not metric, right? Just a hair this way, or a hair that way, the whole universe, the whole solar system, life as we know it, would not exist. Now, that's what science says. So, if you are really worth it, Excuse me, I didn't have enough breakfast, obviously. And my stomach grumbles like that. Um, Honey, I told you I should have had the omelet. I apologize. Um, So if if you really hate the idea of God, and you see all this evidence from design, what do you do? What do what, What do you say? You say something like, hi, don't cover the bottom. What happens if I cover the bottom? Ah, that was good. She's clever. That was very clever. That was not scripted. That was not scripted. That's a clever woman. Is she married? Okay, there's a young man looking for a wife, I believe, looking for a clever. Clever is good. It can also be bad, though. Be careful. Um, Are we done here? I think we're done. So if you hate the idea of God and all of the scientific evidence piles up and up and up and up, what would you do, what would you say? Well, you have two options. One would be like, it looks like there is a God who designed the universe. If you're intellectually honest, you'd say, maybe it's not Jesus, I don't know what I think, I've got questions, but it sure looks like an intelligent designer designed everything. The evidence is overwhelming. And there are people intellectually honest enough to come to the conclusion. One of the most famous atheists of the 20th century, remember the 20th century? Way, way better than the 21st, right? Actually, no. Uh, but his name was Anthony Flew. Some of you know this story. He, was, he wrote textbooks on atheism. But he was convinced by this argument. As he studied these things, he said, it, the evidence of design is not just impressive. It is overwhelming. Overwhelming. And he came to believe in a god who created the universe. And of course, all his atheist friends just lost their minds. And, and he thought, and he actually said, well, "You know, what is your problem? I, I've always believed in the Socratic method. You follow the evidence. You follow the evidence. You don't worry about where's it taking me. You follow, if you care about truth. So there are atheists that that have that mindset that they believe in truth and they're following the evidence and they're honest. And then you have people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins who clearly have a very shallow view and they just kind of bat this stuff away. But Anthony Flew, at the end of his life, had the privilege of meeting him, he came to faith in a God who created the universe when he had spent his whole life writing uh, the philosophy of atheism, basically. Now, but what if you don't have the intellectual courage and honesty of an Anthony Flew? What do you do? Well, they've come up with a, this is kind of funny, right? It's kind of funny because a lot of times atheists will say that Christians believe crazy stuff. Well, here's what they've come up with, which is infinitely crazier than anything we would believe. They've said, okay, so, Everything in our universe is exquisitely fine-tuned, like, you know, 200 levels of perfect fine-tuning. And they say, uh, okay, we'll accept that, because we have to. But what, here's, here's what we say. We say, there's probably an infinity of universes, and we just happen to be in the one that's perfectly fine-tuned. That, that takes an infinity more of faith to believe than that Jesus rose from the dead, or the Bible is true. It's preposterous, I mean it's genuinely preposterous and part of what I try to do in this book is to, to say, ladies and gentlemen, this is preposterous. It's not even interesting, it's ridiculous. You should horse laugh someone like that out of the room. <laughs> you should say, we could talk about whatever you want but I, I, that's a joke, you're kidding, right? We're at, at a point where the evidence for God has become overwhelming, it's become absolutely overwhelming, and I think in these crazy times of cultural Marxism, and cultural Marxism is, is of course, deeply atheistic, okay, We, we see God raising up a standard in the midst of this battle and giving us evidence, and I thought, we need to have that evidence so that our faith is not like, well, I believe it. Folks, believing one plus one equals two doesn't really take a lot of courage, it's true, You know it's true. And I really believe the Lord wants us to know that these things are true. Not to hope that they're true or to say, well, I was always taught that they were true. But just to know he exists and he has given us evidence for his existence. And science, ironically, which we keep being told is pushing faith out, is doing exactly the opposite. And... I could go on and on and on with examples we don't have time but I want to tell you that it really is astonishing. The second part of the book I talk about biblical archaeology it's the same thing. People have said the Bible's a bunch of folk tales. Well, yeah, except that archaeology continues to uncover evidence that what the Bible says is history. And it happens over and over and over. The most dramatic example, what really led me to write the book, was uh, I, I met a man in Albuquerque, which I think I said uh, always reminds me of a Johnny Cash song. I met a man in Albuquerque, uh, and he told me he was a biblical—he's a biblical archaeologist who discovered biblical Sodom. And I thought biblical Sodom, Sodom is like at the first couple of pages of the Bible. Like I don't expect archaeology to be able to prove that or to find that. That's like way, way past it. Well, if you read that chapter in my book you realize it's practically open and shut it's not like we think he's discovered it he's discovered biblical sodom and archaeology over and over and over in the last 150 years has shown that what the bible says you can take it to the bank it's true it's history it's not some folk tales but it happens over and over and over again but again where are the headlines? We live in a world that says well, you know, in nineteen sixty six we kind of decided that we're not going to cover that stuff we've already figured it out. God is you know yeah, probably a, a an archaic thesis, so we're not going to, we're not going to really cover that stuff well, i'm here to tell you the evidence continues and continues and continues to come out, and you're really asked you know. Uh, it's kind of like is it Ch- Chico Marx talking to in one of the Marx Brothers movies? He's like, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? You know, like it, it. It's really it's like somebody's asking you to believe them, not what you see. The science, the biblical archaeology, everything seems to, to to pile up. And believe me, I'm I'm just skittering over the tops here. But we need to know that the evidence is astonishing for the Lord of Scripture. And not just for his existence, but also for the historicity of the Bible. That this is not just uh, some old stuff, but that this is history. This is the word of God. You can trust it. I, I think, you know, so the question when we say we believe something, the question is always, do we, do we really believe it, right? When Jesus asks, is it Martha or Mary, you know, at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, he, he, he says, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life. And, and then he says, do, do you believe this? And our answer is always like, oh, yes, Lord. Oh, yes, Lord. I believe it. But it's almost like he's looking at our hearts. He's probing our hearts. He's like, do you really believe this? Do you really trust me? Do you live like that's true? Or do you hedge your bets? Because if you don't believe these things, folks, and this is where at the end of the book, I... I kind of turn the spotlight on atheism and I say, okay, you've got a lot of questions about the Bible and this and that, but let's look at what you believe because no one ever does. Christopher Hitchens never volunteers. Uh, they, They never volunteered the unbearable bleakness of the atheist worldview. The atheist worldview tells you there's no God, there's no meaning. We're alone in the universe, but they don't, They don't really want to connect the dots and say that means that you're not created in the image of God. You evolved out of primordial soup through random processes. Therefore, your life has literally no value. Therefore, you're an accident. Therefore, you're not sacred. Therefore, uh, killing a child in the womb, out of the womb, life has no value. They don't want to go there because they know that won't play well. People will be like, well that doesn't sound right to me. I love my wife and my children and my parents and I don't, I, I don't, I don't know about that. You're, you're telling me that that's all random, that's just the evolutionary process making me want to perpetuate the species. There's nothing transcendent in this idea of love. There's no such thing as beauty. There's no such thing as meaning, good or evil. Is that what you're telling me? Well, very few atheists have the guts to say, yes, that's what I'm telling you. And even when they do have the guts, they contradict themselves, because here's the problem. Even an atheist making that claim is created in the image of God. And they themselves long for meaning. And even when they argue with you for their atheist position, they are inadvertently revealing that they care about meaning and truth. Because if it's true that we come from nowhere and we're going nowhere, when we die, it's like crushing mosquito, it's nothing, if that's true, Why would you get so passionate about arguing against religion? Why would you care? Well, the fact that they care proves that they don't believe the universe lacks meaning. No one can believe that. It's an unbearable, bleak view that there isn't a soul alive who can face it. Or if they do, they're just, they're, 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 they're playing games, uh, e- even by believing, even by saying that they, that they believe that. But then they, they ask us to believe some stuff, right? Like they'll say, like, oh, yeah, racism is wrong. And you'd say, well, OK, wait, 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 I know it's wrong. I know why it's wrong. Why do you say it's wrong? If you ask somebody who doesn't believe in God and say, you believe that we evolved out of the primordial soup by accident, Darwinism, by the way, was, in the first decades uh, and all the way up until you really get to Hitler, it was openly racist. Because it said Darwinism, it proves that we evolve differently and, and some things are more evolved than others and it's just scientific to say that some racists and some groups and some ethnicities are more evolved than others, that's just science. Well, they haven't been mentioning that in the last few decades, right? They say, no, 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 we know racism is wrong. And I think, well, that's really nice. I know it too. But tell me, why do you know it? What does your philosophy tell you? My philosophy from the scripture says, God created us all equal in his image. That is why Christians have been at the forefront of abolition of slavery, at the forefront of civil rights. That's why uh, we believe in mercy toward the weak and the poor and the suffering. That's Christian doctrine, that's biblical doctrine. Where do you get your ideas from? Where do you get the idea that you should care for the poor? Why? Survival of the fittest says crush the poor, kill the poor, who cares? Well, there have been times in history when, when people have lived out that bleak, nihilistic, atheist philosophy. But we're living in a time where they're pretending like, oh no, 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 that those are, we don't agree with those people. We don't wanna, we don't wanna hear about that. Well, we're here to tell you, you have to deal with that. Because your doctrine demands, demands that you face the meaninglessness of life, the brutality of science. Do, do you know that, um, uh, I always forget, the Columbine murders, those two young men that, that killed you know, 20 people, I mean, the, that w- one of them was wearing a T-shirt that said natural selection. Okay, that's Darwin, right? Survival of the fittest. They planned those murders. It, they happened on April twentieth. That's Hitler's birthday. They did this on purpose. There's a worldview that says survival of the fittest. That the idea of mercy, of helping the weak, of caring for the old, caring for the young, that that's just those are just silly ideas. Survival of the fittest, natural selection. That is the worldview that arises out of atheism. and So I think we need to say to atheists, listen, you can believe anything you want, it's a free country, but don't tell me you're against racism because you're just blowing smoke and I know you are. It is only somebody who believes in the scripture that has any reason to say we shouldn't be racist or that says we should care for the poor. Your doctrine says, oh, I, I create my own meaning, and we, we, just, we just believe these things, or we just believe it. It's sophistry, folks. It's smoke-blowing. They're playing head games. I'm here to tell you the evidence for God, the evidence for Scripture has mounted and mounted and mounted, and we can now have enough evidence from the world of atheism over the decades to say that we see that that worldview is not just wrong, but unprecedentedly destructive and evil. My wife and I just saw a movie, Mr. Jones, kind of a hard movie to watch, not for the kids, but it talks about Stalin in the Ukraine and how the Soviet atheists, they didn't believe in in life or the meaning of life, and they wiped out millions of people because they didn't believe that life is sacred. But at the time, you had a lot of journalists and and people who said, well, we believe in the concept of of communism. It's gonna be utopia for the workers, whatever. You can give them a pass because they hadn't seen where it's gonna go. But that's 90 years ago. And today, we can say, Mr. Atheist, we have a record of what your doctrines have done in the last nine decades. And it is unfathomably bleak. It's so bleak, it is evil. It's frightening. We need to talk about what we believe and what it does and what you believe and what it does, and we need to be honest. We need to be honest that the evidence for God is overwhelming. Now, I just wanna close with this thought that when I looked into the fine-tuned universe and you start seeing how God has designed everything, because I just mentioned a few things, but everywhere science looks, on the microscopic level, on the cellular level, when you talk about life, there's a few chapters in the book where you talk about a single cell. The simplest life is so complex it, 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 you can't even bear how complex it is. And science says to you, "Oh, it just happened randomly. It just kind of collected itself." You know, there was like a that, that that's like a tornado going through a junkyard and creating a 747 with you know <laughs> with, with, with seatbelts and tray tables. Like it, there's not even a you know that that. Everywhere you look, you see evidence of design that makes you have an appreciation for who God is that I'll bet you wouldn't have before. Because we all say, oh, God is an awesome God. When you start seeing how awesome, it is frightening. When you start thinking who he is, it is frightening. You want to fall on your face, and you realize, I didn't appreciate quite who God was. And then you realize, oh, here's the good news. That God who created atomic structure and subatomic structure and the universe and the far-flung galaxies and life, that God knows your name and loves you and has a plan for you today and tomorrow and all the days of your life and wants you to be with him in eternity forever. That God died for you, not for humanity, for you. Well, some people have said that's good news. It can't get much better than that. When you realize who God is, and then you realize that, yeah, that God knows your name and loves you, it's, it's the most astonishing news in the history of news. There is nothing in reality that can compare to it. And so I think at the end of the day, We need to be a little bit bolder in our faith. Let me rephrase that. We need to be dramatically bolder in our faith. You don't need to have all the answers. You never will, and I never will, but we know enough to say that the God of Scripture who died for us on the cross, who defeated death on the cross, that's not a metaphor, he defeated death on the cross, he has given us enough information to live out our faith with utter boldness with no fear about speaking the truth, especially at a time when people are being told, hey, shut up. When you're told shut up, whatever they're telling you to shut up about, make sure you scream about it as often as possible. (laughs) Live out your faith with utter boldness because God has given us evidence on a level that if you don't, it's on you. We have no excuse. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and Lord, the truth of who you are is unbearable. If it were not for Jesus, we could not bear it, Lord God. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of your love for us, expressed in his death and resurrection, you give us the ability to walk and to live as we were meant to from before the foundations of the world, you give us the boldness and the faith to live with genuine freedom. And in this generation, Lord, I know that you are calling this church, your church, to live freely and to behave in such a way that we will never regret how we have lived, but that we will live as boldly as you have enabled us to live for your eternal purposes in history. Lord, we ask for an anointing of boldness and faith on everyone who can hear this for your eternal purposes until we see you face to face in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you.